Hey, if you got a Bible, meet me in Psalm 128. We are smack dab in the middle of a five-part series called Road Trip Playlist. And the reason we titled the series that is because there are 15 songs in your Bible from Psalm 120 to 134 called the Songs of Ascent. And they are the original summer mixtape. Jewish families traveling to Jerusalem would memorize and sing these songs to pass the time, no different than what any of you would do on one of your summer vacations in a car. And the reason you should care about these 15 songs in your Bible, and what I find super compelling about them, is that Jesus would have sung these exact songs on his way to Jerusalem. And in case you're new to Christianity, Jesus is kind of a big deal. And the New Testament portion of your Bible that records certain parts of his life. We read that Mary and Joseph brought their family to Jerusalem when Jesus was about 12 years old. You can read about it in Luke chapter 2. But in addition to that account, roughly 20 years later at the Last Supper, Scripture tells us that before he and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus was going to pray all night and uh, long before they were, uh, not long before he was arrested, and ultimately crucified in Matthew 26, 30. It says that the disciples and Jesus together at the Last Supper sung a hymn. I like to believe in both cases that they sung one of these songs of ascent. So I would encourage you on your own time to read them all on your own. But this morning out of Psalm 128, I want to speak to you on the subject of happy campers. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking... Is there such a thing as a happy camper? Obviously, no, there's not. There's no such thing as that. That is a marketing ploy to sell RVs and camping equipment. And uh, actually, if you would research the, the phrase throughout history in the uh, early part of the, the 19th century, uh, an author was writing about a couple captives, uh, castaways that were put on an island. Their punishment uh, had caused a number of things, but one of them recounting their dilemma says this, one might have thought that we were a pair of happy campers enjoying a hard-earned vacation rather than two forlorn or unhappy maroons. So you can see even back then, the first time in history where we have the words It is not actually about a happy camper because nobody is happy camping. But nonetheless, my goal for you this morning today is to help you figure out how you can have a happy life, how you can be a proverbial happy camper. And to be fair to the text, not just happy. The word in your Bible is, is in English, it's translated as joyful. It's a Hebrew word, literally means happy, happy. Happy to the exponential degree, happy double, happy squared. Uh, this is what, what the uh, scripture is wanting for you. This is what God is wanting for your life, to be happy, happy. It's different than just the emotion of happiness. But that being said, I promise you, if you can stay tuned all the way to the end, we're not just going to be talking about happiness and bunnies eating chocolate on top of rainbows. Like it's going to be way deeper than that. I'm going to give you some practical things that you can do when you leave here today. I promise you it's going to change your life. If you can run your decisions through the grid that I'm going to give you, it will give you something better than happiness. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. 
that's how I know. So there you go. Psalm 128, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. How joyful, happy, happy are those who fear the Lord, all who follow His ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessing for those who fear Him. May the Lord continually bless you from Zion. May you see Jerusalem prosper as long as you live. May you live to enjoy your grandchildren. May Israel have peace. I want you to take a second to notice all of the adjectives used in that song. Joyful. Enjoy life. Be joyful. Prosperous. Flourishing. Blessed. Which I would argue, that's kind of what everybody is looking for in life. Right? To enjoy it. To have joy, to be prosperous, to be fruitful. Uh, We all are asking ourselves what experiences and what trinkets can we put into our life that are going to bring us joy and prosperity. We want the proverbial good life. Now in my experience, there seems to be a slight disconnect between the good life most Americans picture and the good life that God seems to be promising here in the song. Most people's definition of the good life seems to be the path of least resistance. Like, how can I acquire the most amount of stuff with the least amount of work? Most people's dream is to reach retirement, where they can travel and not have to worry about their kids anymore. So how many of you all know uh, traveling with kids is not a vacation, right? I mean, that is... That's work. That's not vacation. But uh, people all picture a time in life where we don't have to worry about anything. We just want to, like the commercials, sit on the beach with a Corona and call John Gruden or more recently Tony Romo on a touchstone phone and get our questions of life answered. Yet what this psalm holds up for us is a picture of the actual good life, the good life as defined by the author of life. And it starts out, first of all, by saying uh, those who joy comes to those who fear God and follow His ways. Or your translation might say joy comes to those who fear God and walk in His ways. So first of all, I'm wondering, okay, what does it mean to fear God? Good news, that is what you all pay me for. So when you look up the word fear in the original language, which is Hebrew, uh, it literally means reverence or It's actually where we get the word in English, awesome. And it's quite a popular idea in Scripture. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8-13, the fear, same word, of the Lord is hatred of evil. Jesus in Matthew 10-28 says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. See, this, this is not like boogeyman fear. This is not like my kids wanting me to close their closet door at night or my wife wanting me to kill a snake. This is like you or I going to Hawaii and getting to travel up to an active volcano and staring down the mouth at it. And we appreciate its beauty. 
We admire it, but we certainly do not want to trifle it, trifle with it. We, we like to stare and look at its beauty and again admire it, quite frankly, because we know its power and potential. We have a reverential fear of what it is capable of. Likewise, this is what it means to fear God, to hold Him in high esteem based on what He is capable of. Now, fearing God is not the only qualifier to your happiness. Our text says, in addition to fearing God, we must also walk in His ways, follow in His ways. So what does that mean? Well, this is not what you pay me for. This is why God sent his son, Jesus, so that we would have an example and a model to follow. Jesus is what God looks like with skin on. So really, we just need to do whatever he did. Y'all ever walk through snow when you were kids in one direction, and when you come home, you decide to walk in your same footprints on the way back? This is what it means to follow in God's ways. This is what our spiritual lives should look like. We see where Jesus went, we see the things that he did, and we need to try and emulate his example. Furthermore, what's super helpful is Jesus was once asked, okay, what's the secret to life? A Pharisee came up to him and said, if we can narrow life down to one thing, Jesus, what is that one thing? He was hoping to trap Jesus, because how can you narrow life down to one thing? And Jesus says, oh no, there is one thing that you can do. You can read about it in Matthew 22. I'll just give you Jesus' response for the sake of time. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Entire Old Testament, law and the prophets, hang on loving God and loving people. All of life hinges upon your ability to love God and love other people as you love yourself. Now, what's not said is just as important as what is said. Jesus doesn't say, don't not love yourself. He says you have to love other people as much as as you love yourself. The implication being that you do love yourself. So step one in fearing God and following Him is you have to love God and in a reverential sense fear Him. And step two, which is really step 1A, is you have to love yourself as God loves you so that you can love other people in the same way. Now for most people, this is absolutely not a problem. Even if they don't feel love for themselves all the time, they still do love themselves because they're constantly trying to do everything they can to ensure their happiness. But I don't want to take anything for granted because I don't know how you came in here today. But I do know you can leave different. If you don't love yourself right now, you can start taking the necessary steps to begin loving yourself. For no other reason than the creator of the universe loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be reconciled back into a relationship with him. And scripture repeatedly states you are clearly worth love. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says you are not your own. So even if you don't love yourself, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you should honor God with your bodies by loving yourself and taking care of yourself. That is to say, it's time to start loving you. If you want to get super practical, it means start taking care of yourself. 
Stop eating crap food. Work out every now and then. Get enough sleep. Eliminate stress. Stop having anxiety. These are all things that are adversely affecting your body. But start treating yourself like God wants to treat you with love and honor and respect. Now, here's what else Jesus is getting at because he's using this language of love and commandments interchangeably. He says other places in Scripture, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But I think what else is being confirmed here within our song is that they both imply your joy is dependent upon your ability to follow God's laws. So you might want to jot this down. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. The reason we can follow God's rules and laws and in turn be a happy camper is because of our relationship with Him. We should know that the rules and the laws are there for a reason. And they are there for human flourishing. A lot of people think God is out to get them. Like, we better not have too much fun. We can't let God see us enjoying life. He's going to swoop down here and take it all away. That's not true. Nowhere in Scripture is God like that. It says repeatedly that God is for you. As a matter of fact, He's for you so much that He's told you exactly what to expect in life. Isn't it the worst where you want to please somebody, but you have no idea what it actually is that makes them happy? Uh, maybe you had a parent like that growing up, or you've got friends like that. Uh, that's never really been my case, but I did watch that movie, Despicable Me. And Gru's mom is like that. And Gru just constantly wants to do stuff to make her happy. And he's like, look, Mom, I painted a picture of a rocket ship. And she's like, nah. Look, Mom, I actually built a rocket ship. Nah. This is not God's attitude towards you. He is not indifferent. He knows the desires of your heart and cares about the things you care about. Plus, He tells you what He cares about so that you can do exactly what He wants, which in both cases leads to your joy. Ultimately, what gets us in trouble is when we try and manufacture our own results. Or more frequently, when we believe that God is holding out on us. We're pretty good at convincing ourselves that God is after something different than we are. So if we only know what God is for or what He's against, then, and He's got a whole bunch of rules, oh, well then of course we're going to rebel. And listen, parents, the same thing is true with your kids. If the only thing they know about you is what you're against, then of course they're going to rebel. Because rules without relationship equals rebellion. I'll say it this way. If they hear it, but don't see it, of course they're going to reject it. That goes for all areas of life. I am not God's gift to parenting. But I do know this. If my kids wake up early and come upstairs, they're going to see me drinking coffee and reading the Bible. And if they would come into one of our small group sessions, they're going to see a group of adults all meeting together and reading Scripture and laughing and eating and praying and enjoying the experience. And if we ever go serve somewhere, we're going to take our kids with us. 
because we want them to know that this is what life is about. They're not the point. God and other people as you love yourself. That is the point. And this is what Christians do. We serve not out of obligation, but because Christ first served us. Because we're going to love God and we're going to love other people. Listen to me, dads, on this Father's Day. If you want your kids to see a father in our God, then let them see God in their father. Can I hear a better amen, church? We got a lot of men in this country who have decided to punt on their responsibility to be the spiritual leader of their household, and it's completely derailing the capital C Global Church. And let me also quickly say, thank God for single mothers who have had to take on not only the spiritual responsibility of their house, but every other responsibility economically and socially and and academically. And if you're part of this church, I can guarantee you that Uh, If there's something you feel completely incapable of teaching your children, we're going to come alongside you. Not just single moms, but single dads, any single parent. Listen, Laura's left me at home by myself with the kids before. It's not super awesome. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Like, so I, I don't know how single parents do it. So what I can promise you as the leader of this church is we will come alongside of you and to help you. And if your kids want to know how to throw a football or gut a deer or catch a fish, we'll come alongside them and we'll teach them how to do all of those things. Because I believe that is what the church is for, to pastor everybody's family together. But I know some of you have experienced what that relationship with a father is like. You had a great dad. I also know some of you here this morning didn't have a great dad. And so it's hard for you to even fathom and understand God as a father. But if there's any picture that God has chosen to use in Scripture to reveal himself, it is that of a loving, caring, good, good dad. This is why it's easy for me to talk about God's blessing because as a dad, I know what it's like to give good gifts to my kids. And I know what it's like that I would do nothing, I would do anything I could to help them. I know what it's like to see the joy on their face and experience, uh, you know, happiness when they get something that they want. And it's fun as a dad to see those things happen. And this is the picture that God is giving us in this song. When you walk in his ways, you enjoy life. God's laws are for your flourishing. He's not keeping anything from you. He's not holding out on you. But pay careful attention to the distinction that this psalmist writes in verse 2. It qualifies God's viewpoint by stating, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor, which implies you will be laboring. In other words, when you're following God's ways, it's impossible to be lazy. That's because God doesn't give you what He's gifted you to build. You've heard me say that before. I'll say it this way. Your blessing is dependent upon your laboring. It's not a super popular idea, but it doesn't make it any less true. Following God means working hard. 
Think about it. It took Jesus 30 years to reveal himself as the Savior of the world. What was he doing that whole time? Well, we know at least part of the time he was giving us an example of what it meant to work hard. He was likely, as the firstborn son, working in his dad's construction business because we get no mention of Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old. So it's argued that Joseph must have died. And as the firstborn son, Jesus took on the responsibility of the family workplace. He's laboring fruitfully. Again, giving us an example. If I have to hear about one more 30-year-old kid moving back home, not because of life circumstances, but rather because they want to be lazy and sit downstairs and play video games all day and eat Cheetos, and mom, where's the meatloaf? Like, I'm going to lose my mind. That is not okay. And so if I haven't yet offended you, let me take the opportunity to try and offend everybody else in the room. All the societal problems we are facing in a country center around the idea of personal responsibility and people not being willing to take it on. And we want to blame everybody else for every single problem. And it wasn't me. It was the left or the right or the privilege or unequal opportunity or it was that serpent that came along and tempted me. It was the woman you gave me, Genesis 3. Yet, God's wisdom says, you're going to enjoy the fruit of your labor when you take on personal responsibility. You say, no, this wasn't anybody else's fault. I'm going to do everything I can in my power because the Bible repeatedly says, could have shown you dozens of passages, that you're going to reap what you sow. If you don't like what you're sowing, throw down some different seed. Water the seed in a different way. Most people's problem is they're trying to reap a harvest from an instant gratification world. And that's not what it means to harvest anything. Harvest takes a lot of work. I like that the psalmist uses the example that your wife's going to be like a fruitful grapevine. And your kids are going to be like vigorous olive shoots. If I were writing the song, I would have chosen to use the lyric, what you nourish is going to flourish. Because I rap a little on the side. (laughs) Vanilla gorilla is what they call me. What you nourish is going to flourish. Do you know grapevines take three years to start producing fruit? An olive shoot can take up to seven years before you start seeing any indication of fruit being on the tree. That's not an accident that he that the psalmist uses those things to describe his wife and his children. The message is clear. You've got to keep cultivating, keep protecting, keep nourishing, even when you're not seeing the investment pay off. It can take years. What's ironic is the passage says that is the Lord's blessing. A flourishing home. A family around your dinner table. That is the Lord's blessing. Men, not a sports car, not a jacked up truck, not a motorcycle, not a huge bank account, not sleeping around, not divorcing your wife to marry a younger woman. That is the Lord's blessing. A flourishing home. 
except this really isn't America's definition of a blessing. Birth rates in this country are drastically dropping, arguably because kids aren't most people's definition of success because they're a lot of work. It takes seven years to start producing fruit if we're using the analogy of the olive tree. Layton's never once come home. He's older than seven. He's never once come home and dropped a 20 down on the table and said, thanks for everything you do. Like, appreciate it. Like, oh, this is my contribution to the family. Like, that's never happened. And it's probably not going to happen for a long time. Uh, and, and yet, uh, the, the message is, is clear. These things take work. And in case you're like, well, you can't, it's one passage. You can't, you know, base an entire position of theology based on one passage. Okay, Psalm 112. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, there's our language again, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Forever. See, everybody teaches if you chase might and wealth, then blessings are going to follow in light of the wealth and the riches. But God says, chase me, and might and wealth and prosperity will follow, because again, God is for you. So listen to me very close. I'm not saying if you follow God, you get rich. What I 100% am saying is who would want to serve a God that if all the only thing you had to look forward to was poverty and weakness? No, God is powerful, and God promises to take care of his children. And it might not look the way you thought it was going to look in your Western American eyes, but God promises you'll never be in want. Moving on, write this down. There's a difference between being a Christian family and a Christ-centered family. You want to be a happy camper? you got to understand there's a difference between being a Christian family and a Christ-centered family who fear God and follow His ways. Christian families go to church. Christ-centered families are the church and exist to change the world. And if I know anything, I know that what you expose yourself to shapes who you're going to become. So the reason I'm passionate about you coming to church is not because church is some sort of great destination, but rather because church is an identity. Church is who you are. And it leads to prosperity and blessing and you flourishing. And when you continually make this a part of your daily life, weekly schedule, like, like what you're exposing to your, yourself to shapes who you become. So... Bring yourself to church. Even if I weren't a pastor, you would not have to ask me on a Sunday morning if we're going to church because for years and years now, I've seen the blessing that comes by showing up and serving and encouraging others. It's like asking me, are, are you going to breathe today? Yeah, you know, I mean, is, are we going to eat? You know, it's like asking me on this Father's Day, Laura coming up to me and saying, hey, you want to make out tonight? Yeah, like what? You know, like, of course, what are you talking about? It's not even a real question. Don't tell her I said that or that will adversely affect those chances. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but of course we're going to church. This is what, this is what we do. And check it, what's so cool about this is it's a generational thing. 
Look at what it says at the end of the passage. You're going to enjoy your grandchildren. They're going to be happy campers because of the life and legacy that you have left. And so if this is the promise that we have, blessing and joy and peace, then why don't we always follow God? If happiness and prosperity in your soul are what await, and not just for you, but for the generations that come after you, then why don't we follow God on his path? Why do we consistently choose our own? Often, I believe, is because God's trails don't always make sense to us. Hard and narrow is the path that leads to heaven. When there's this other path over here that looks nice and broad and, and easy to traverse and it looks like it's in the shade and it seems to have everything that we would want in life. And see, again, your brain is training you to follow the path of least resistance. This is why you can't always trust you. You realize every problem that you've ever had in life, the common element within that problem is you, right? Wherever you go, there you are. Therein lies the problem. That's not to say you are the, you know, the cause of every problem, but you're kind of there. So you need to know that sometimes the best blessings God wants to give you lie on the other side of discomfort. So you've got to learn how to embrace the challenge. Work hard. And so I promise you something practical, so let me do this. Let me give you a helpful tip uh, that somebody gave me a long time ago with regards to children, and then I'm going to give you this practical filter that you can run all your decisions through. I guarantee you all of these things combined will help change your life. First of all, kids, okay? So this goes for your own children, and even if you don't have children, you know some. So this works regardless of where you're at in life. But here's what you can do. Connect the ways God has blessed them with the joy they're experiencing. Your kids, other people's kids, connect the ways God has blessed them with the joy they're experiencing. So for example, when Lana comes up to me and says, I just love chapstick, Dad. I say, I know, how cool is God that he created Dr. Charles Brown Fleet, the man who invented chapstick, and put him in this country where he would have the freedom to sell such an amazing invention. You know, uh, when Leighton comes to me and says, Dad, I just love it when we get to play Fortnite, I say, dude, I, I know, no doubt, how awesome is God that in his providence he looked into the fullness of time and saw the country of Japan and Sony Interactive Entertainment and said to himself, yes and amen to the PlayStation. And here, we, here it is, for no other reason than our enjoyment in life. Like how good of a God do we serve that he just gives us thing, things for fun? You see what I'm saying? How about we learn what God is for so that when we do discover what God is against, we can better understand that that's supposed to lead to our joy. He's not trying to hold anything out on you. So connect your kids' joy to God's blessing. Now, grid 
for the good life. This is an acronym that I came up with a few months ago. I started using it in my own life. It's working for me. I can almost guarantee you it will work for you because it's rooted in Scripture. But I like to call it the waffle grid because waffles are a tasty delight, right? And they are shaped in a beautiful, well, however you make it, but there's squares inside of them, and the squares act like a filter. They hold the perfect amount of peanut butter and syrup in there, so you get a great tasty bite. It's a filter. And don't talk to me about butter, okay? Nobody puts butter on a waffle, but I'm getting distracted. Squares, filter, all working, acronym, grid to the good life, wellness, that's the W, wellness. You've got to start making decisions based on spiritual, mental, and physical wellness. Is the opportunity before me going to please God? Does it involve fearing Him, following in His footsteps? Is there spiritual wellness in there? Is there mental wellness to what I'm trying to decide? Is this giving me more knowledge? The Bible repeatedly talks about taking your thoughts captive. And so if you're not training your brain, you're doing life wrong, you, you've, you've got to figure out how your brain is trying to lead you down this path of least resistance and sometimes override that. It's a very real thing. Physical wellness, again, we talked about that. God cares about your body. He wants you physically healthy. Spiritual, mental, physical wellness. How does this decision impact any of that? Secondly, family how is, this impact, how is this decision going to impact my family? This could also include your friends, okay, family and friends. But uh, the question is, what is this, how does this play out in my family? Does this make them a fruitful grapevine? Is this going to put uh, kids around my table and be vigorous olive shoots? Am I making decisions that's going to prosper my family and my friends? In this order, wellness, spiritual, mental, physical, family. Thirdly, finances. How is this impacting my finances? You know, what does this job entail? Is this going to affect all these other things that we just talked about? You know, I'm a big advocate of budgets. I think you need to give 10% of your income away. Save 10% of your income for a rainy day and live on 80% of your income. I think this is just a healthy thing to practice that if you're not living on 80% of your income, you're not setting yourself up for financial success. It's not a sin to not live on 80, uh, but I think you develop margin in your life and give 10. I'm so passionate. The Bible calls out a tithe. I'm passionate about that. Don't give your money to this church if you think the only thing we're after is your money. Give 10% somewhere else. I don't care, but give 10 away. Save 10. Live on 80. Can I afford this? That's the question. Because I just got online the other day and found out that the average American is spending 109% of their income. How is that possible? Because you're taking on massive amounts of debt. That's how it's possible. That is not setting you up for success. 10, 10, 80. Finances. Last part of the waffle grid. I know there's not an A. Don't bring that up. I didn't want to call it wiffle because who likes wiffle ball? Waffle. Life 
experiences. Life experiences. How does this impact my joy? What does this mean for my goals? You know, I have a ton of life experiences. I keep a little uh, deal in Evernote, a little note that says life experiences. And anytime I hear about a fantastic restaurant, I put that in to the, the little journal. And anytime, you know, I want, to, I want to go to every major league ballpark and have the best food item that they have at that ballpark. You know, life experience. I want to drive a Lamborghini. Come on, somebody. Like, hello. That'd be awesome. Life experiences. There's places that you can go rent those things. Eventually, it's going to happen for me. You know, skydiving. Whatever it is. Set some goals for your life. That Things that you want to do to enjoy. And then cross those things out and keep adding to the list day in and day out. But again, let me say this as we close. God has given us this planet to steward it well, to make His glory known to the nations, to, to serve Him by witnessing to people who don't understand there's something keeping them from God. The Bible calls that sin. And that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth in order to die for sin and beat death by raising from the de- dead, thereby reconciling them back into a relationship with a God who is a good, good Father who cares for them. That's why you're on this planet. But God has also given you this planet to enjoy, to go see things and do things and praise His glorious name. It does not mean that you'll never go through bad days or go through difficult things. But what separates Christians from every other person on this planet is not what we go through, but how we go through it. And because of Jesus' power, because of His Holy Spirit living inside of you when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you are equipped to go through anything. That's ultimately what's at stake for every single person here today. And what I want you to wrestle to the ground before you leave is do you trust in Jesus as the prevailing power in your life to forgive your sin and to lead you into a better life to come? I assure you, the best is yet to come. But it takes work. It takes hard work. And navigating decisions and learning from failures and all of these things playing together. But listen to me, God is for you. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? God is for you. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life. He's a good dad. And he wants to lead you into fullness of life. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for this truth that you love us, that you care about us, you know exactly where we are at in life. God, we're accepting responsibility for where we have come. And we're asking you now to do what only you can do and lead us to where you want us to go. God, thank you for the free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to help lead us and direct us. As we quiet our hearts and our souls, I know there's a lot of things you're thinking about right now and where you're going to eat lunch and all of that. 
quiet those voices right now and just listen to God. He's going to bring things to your mind how you can love him better of people that you might need to love as you love yourself. But he's speaking to you, encouraging you, maybe challenging you to get back on this path that's, yes, hard and narrow. But God's got something better for you at the end of that road. God, forgive us of our sin. Make us new. Help us trust you with our future implicitly. Let us follow in your ways. Change us for eternity. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.